Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 14, The Song and Dance Man, Frog Moody. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. Joining us today is Paul Begg in Maidstone, Kent in the UK. Allie Ryder is in Charlotte, Virginia. Mike Covell is in Hull in the UK. Stan Russo is coming to us from New York City. And Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And our special guest is Frog Moody, and he is a composer, author, and editor of the Whitechapel Society Journal, which is the publishing wing of the Whitechapel Society 1888. That organization arose from the Cloak and Dagger Club, largely due to the efforts of Frog Moody. He is also the composer of the musical Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, and also he has done uh, work on a play on a titanic and we do thank frog for coming on the show today hi frog hi thanks for having me uh, just a correction i'm uh, i'm not actually editor of the Whitechapel society journal that's adrian morris i'm the production really i put the thing together oh okay the production designer then yeah all right frog um you've been around the um uh, since you're an old uh, frequenter of the Cloak and Dagger Club, um, why don't you tell our listeners uh, what first uh, got you interested in the Whitechapel murders? Um, I think it was uh, a program that was on uh, BBC television uh, based around fictional detectives Watton Barlow. Uh, It was probably one of the first programs to serialize the Jack the Ripper murders, as far as I can remember. Uh, I was only a child at the time, but um, I can remember sneaking down the stairs, listening to that lovely music that introduced the program, uh, and watching the program through the crack of the jarly door because I wasn't allowed to watch such horrible things. All the adults were allowed to watch it. Uh, of course, I used to sneak down. As soon as a young boy is told you can't watch something, they they probably go and do so. So I used to watch the whole program through the, the crack of the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, um, I remember seeing a, an old silent movie called The Lodger, uh, Hitchcock, one of Hitchcock's first films um, that got me really interested in the world of film and I think the first book uh, on the Ripper subject was bought me for a present it was the Stephen Knight book uh, with that in hand I then decided to go and visit all the murder um, locations up in the East End, that was in the early 80s and um, ended up having a few jars in the Ten Bells pub so um my first visit to the East End was early, at the early 1980s. Okay. <coughs> um, Frog, uh, you're best known, uh, you know, in the Ripper community for your uh, musical, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. Um, how did that project come about, and when did it start? Um, well, I've been in lots of rock bands, and... Um, traveled uh, through Europe, made records, all the usual things that you do. Um, I became quite disillusioned with uh, rock bands because <laughs> people never used to turn up for rehearsals and, you know, and uh, things used to come to a dead end. Uh, we had contracts that went uh, pear-shaped. So I decided one day to lock myself away into a recording studio and do like a, a concept album based around my, my favorite subject, which was the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, I was probably locked away for three months in the studio, um, called in session musicians, that sort of thing, to help me. Um, when the album was finished, uh, we decided that um, perhaps we should try and see if we could make it into a, a rock musical, which we promptly did. We turned around and got actors and actresses and the producer, um, not really knowing how it was going to go down because I had this fear of you know, the feminist element turned up and saying, how dare you portray, you know, glorify the genre of murders in stage plays and that sort of thing. 
however, we did, and um, it went down really well. Uh, through that, we played the first ever British-UK conference. We were the entertainment for the Saturday night uh, when Rosie Howells organized it. And then we, we did the show at the first American conference as well. So it stemmed from that, really. We've played um, all over uh, you know, the UK, really, Norwich, London, all around, uh, South Coast. Uh, and last year, it was actually taken up by an American company who produced it. They, they actually paid us royalties to perform it in, in the States. Um, so that was, that was terrific. Frog, it's uh, Mike in Hull. I know the Hi. musical is available on CD. Are there any plans to release it as sort of a, on, on any of the visual formats, um, such as DVD or Blu-ray or anything like that? Well, interestingly enough, the, I was approached by a, uh, a filmmaker, and we did actually make the show into a feature-length film. It was uh, he wrote a new story around it, uh, based around an intrigue, based around a, a touring um, uh, musical company. Uh, wrote a new story, but it was all the songs were involved in it, and part of our script was involved in it. Um, unfortunately, due to contractual problems, it's never been released. It was supposed to go to Cannes, the New York New York Film Festival. Uh, it still might do so, because we're still in negotiations trying to get this contractual problem sorted out. Uh, the film's completed. It was actually shown at the the, uh, the conference in Brighton uh, in a rough format. But um, we're hoping, the idea is to actually ho uh, release it eventually on DVD, yeah. Um, we're lucky enough to have on this show two veterans from the old Cloak and Dagger days, being yourself and Paul Begg. Um, could you give us a little bit of background on how that club was formed and and um, kind of, I know it's probably a long story, but kind of take us through uh, uh, the Cloak and Dagger Club and, and then how and how that spawned Ripperologist magazine. Well, it was actually started by a fellow called Mark Galloway in 1994. Um, he met with a, a group of chums to uh, set this club up to uh, you know, study the Jack the Ripper murders, and uh, to some extent the East End as well. They, they originally met in a pub called, in the East End called the Alma, uh, eventually moved to another pub called the City Darts. Um, Mark Galloway was the first editor of the in-house journal that was called the Ripperologist. Uh, that was forwarded somewhat by a chap called Paul Daniels. Uh, eventually, Paul Begg took, took over as editor, and um, the magazine improved with... Um, uh, with fantastic covers and a, a much better content. Um, eventually, through, through uh, one thing and another, the, the, uh, the, the journal, Ripperologist, and the Club and Dagger Club went their separate ways. Now, in 2005, I decided to start this thing off again, really, as the Whitechapel Society, trying to bring in more elements of the East End. I think that there's only so much you can talk about on, on the Jack the Ripper subject, so I wanted to bring more speakers in, uh, a wider spectrum of East End interests. Um, and it's kind of picked up from there, really. Um, that's it pretty much up to date. And there is um, some talk that maybe the name of the club, Cloak and Dagger, was an impediment to uh, um, getting a, a wider audience to participate. Well, the thing I found was I um, took over booking the speakers, and um, it seemed like when I phoned up academics, professors and stuff, who I wanted to attract to the club, uh, doctors so forth, um, the name the Cloak and Dagger Club kind of put them off. They thought it was uh, a role-played Jack the Ripper Society. Uh, even when I explained to them that you know, that wasn't the case at all, it was still the name was still enough to, to put some people off. So... We thought that the Whitechapel Society might appeal to a wider, you know, wider uh, audience of speakers. Frog, have yeah. you got any plans to uh, to put the, the the talks onto to tape or, or or disc or something or other, so that people who, for one reason or another, don't attend the club or can't attend the club because they live too far away, you know, they they would be able to uh, to hear what's said because you ha you 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 really pulling in some good speakers uh, now you you have uh, uh, forgotten the lady's name but who's doing the book on, I think it's the Dorset Street book isn't it um, she's due to um, to speak soon is that Sarah Wise I think that's that yes yeah, Sarah Wise's uh, book 
And she yeah, isn't yeah. she due to speak there? Because I, I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear some of the talks, but uh, you, know, you can't always get to the club to do that. Well, she she is the next speaker. That's one I'm really looking forward to this year. Yeah, me um, too. If I don't get. There's all sorts of ideas floating around, and um, uh, I've actually kind of, well, I've been trying to come off the committee myself. I, I'm trying to go ex officio um, to try and make some of the more uh, committee members a bit more proactive. Um, right. But we've, we've been toying around with ideas like, um, you know, having iPod broadcasts, uh, video in them and put them out for sale, uh, recording the talks, that sort of thing. That's all mm. been chewed around, talked over, but really... Uh, there's only so much I can do myself. It really yeah. needs someone else. So, you know, when you're doing the magazine, uh, the website, and booking the speakers, it really needs someone else to come forward and, and, and take it forward. You know, it's always been a bit of a bit of a problem, but uh, certainly one of those things that I, I th- it, it would stop it being uh, kind of a horrible phrase, uh, but but parochial. It would it would broaden horizons of the club a lot if. Uh, if some of the, the these talks could uh, could be recorded and even even just just put onto a, a CD from the well, computer right. and, and uh, provided, I I'd, I'd certainly love to get those. I think the thing that happens uh, this this happens generally, but when the Whitechapel Society started in two thousand and five, uh, it starts with bright ideas and everybody's all for it, and you know you know and. To a certain extent, a lot of those ideas have, you know, they've worked and it, it's gone from strength to strength. But really, you know, it needs a bit more, I mean, there's a hell of a lot more work to do to make it the society I want it to become. It's, it's not there yet. Um, for instance, I mean, I'd like Whitechapel societies worldwide, you know, different groups meeting worldwide to, um, you know, with a, with a nerve centre based in London, which would be us. Mm. But uh, the ideas come across as fantastical, but uh, that's what I want to, to achieve eventually. So, uh, do you encourage yeah. um, people um, in the United States and Canada or whatever to start up their own Whitechapel societies, or, or I mean, or I mean, how 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 do you envision that working? Basically, yeah. You know, it's like um, other societies, like the Sherlock Holmes societies. You know, they're worldwide. Uh, they, you know, they've got a, you know, a nerve center that's that's based in the UK. But yeah, you know, eventually groups of people all over the Europe, worldwide, meeting to discuss and study the Jack the Ripper in the East End. You know, the social history, Victoriana, uh, etc. But it would be under, you know, under the hat of the Whitechapel Society, based in the UK, London. I think that's I think an one of the ways idea. that that might be encouraged is is if you if if you could get to, to do the the, the 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 talks and and everything else uh, uh, on a disc because uh, I don't know that groups of people meeting in in cities across America because you'd have to have presumably it would have to be city based wouldn't it because at a push, people can can come from all over Britain to to London for a, for a meeting, but it's a bit difficult to to go from all over America to to Los Angeles or somewhere for the for the weekly meeting. Well, I know this is probably isn't a very good example, but uh, I belong to the Lauren Hardy Society, and uh, they've got what they call tents, which are different organisations, and it is worldwide. Uh, there's mm. one in Rochester in the UK, and there's one in Bath, uh, you know, uh, Somerset and Bath, and um, it works. It works really well. I think really it, just, it would have to be organised. There have to be a set of guidelines drawn up, um, almost like a constitution drawn up, um, that would you know be the same virtually everywhere to make it work. Yeah. Certainly, things organisations like that exist in the, in the sphere of science fiction, where they you know they end up and they have the the World Science Fiction Convention and. Uh, Held somewhere every year, but they're they're all different different uh, groups meet uh, to discuss things um, in different uh, different cities around the world. So yeah, I mean we we we've actually had people um, from our own society saying, you know, uh, there's there's not much more you can sort of like talk about. I mean, that's a ridiculous statement, you know. When you take the sphere of you know what was happening in the East End at the time, you know, social history oh, was invented in the East End. It's an en- endless conversation. I mean, just yesterday, you have, we, we have one 
uh, one title, Who Was Jack the Ripper? And we have three speakers, and I think it started at 2 o'clock, and it didn't finish at 5.30, and all three speakers talked about something different. So yeah. e even even under one subject heading, they're, they're, and they were all broad generalization things. There was nobody talking about specific suspects there. So, um, yeah, it's an endless, endless subject area for, for it, discussion. I mean, yeah, yeah, there is still, unfortunately, a little bit of animosity within the world of Ripperology, you know, certain things caused by the diary. I mean, even, you know, the split between the Ripperologist and the, you know, in the Cloak and Dagger Club is still a thing of contention. Uh, it still brings forward a certain <laughs> amount of... It's still a certain element of nastiness going around in the world of Ripperology, and it's absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, I don't yes. understand it. I don't understand why people bear grudges and, you know, they've got to continue this this ridiculous, you know, stupid idea of, you know, I'm not speaking to him or, you know, different camps of people. Yes, although there are certain benefits sometimes about not speaking to him. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> very <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it, yeah. <laughs> well, you know I'm joking. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, yes, I mean, it is. A, it, 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 unfortunately, the, the, the subject has become a bit uh, riddled with that. Oh, Don, Don Rumbelow, I was talking to the other night at the, at the exhibition, and he was saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. I have a question for Frog. Jack the Ripper is one of those subjects that tend to lend itself to people uh, creating stories around it it really seems to spark the creative need in certain people there's more movies plays musicals about that person whoever he was than say the zodiac killer or any like people i was just wondering two-part question why do you think that is and two what is your favorite fictional treatment or creative treatment of the jack the ripper story besides your own um, well, I think really it's because it's the ultimate whodunit that you've answered the question really because no one knows who it was and, um, you know, it's, it's the ultimate whodunit. Um, I love The Lodger. The Lodger to me, I would, talking of musicals, I'd love to put The Lodger film, Hitchcock's film, to music myself. Um, I've actually started working on, on that, but, um, you know, with all these other things going on, it's a little bit, I'm a bit too busy to, to go back to the studio for three months as I did for the Jack the Ripper show, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the sub subject of Jack the Ripper will ever go away. It is the ultimate whodunit. Um, you know, uh, there's always new suspects coming up. Even you know, you would you would think that the subject's been done to death, but it hasn't. There's always new takes on it. There's always new suspects coming out. Um, and as I say, you know, the industry that's been built around it is absolutely unbelievable. Books, plays, films, you know, radio shows. It's absolutely incredible. Um, Frog, uh, most of us uh, uh, discuss the, the Ripper case sort of long distance. You know, we do it through the message boards at Casebook and uh, other sites. And uh, uh, I was wondering what it was like, or what it is like, uh, to discuss it in the forums you guys do. Because, you know, you guys have started at the Alma and went on to the City Darts. As you said, it's, it seems much more personal in the way to, you know, socially... Uh, uh, socialization, you know, to get together and discuss a uh, subject, you know, with like-minded individuals. Um, so I, I, I suppose the question is, uh, um, you, you know, what's what's a typical meeting like for those who, you know, who don't get to go to one? A classic example of how to answer that question was uh, when um, Trevor Marriott's book came out, and it was it was done to death by a lot of people. You know, he, he was ridiculed and. Uh, he had a chance to answer just a few people face to face. Um, he gave an absolutely fantastic account of himself. Uh, you know, he, he welcomed, because I, I believe he goes out for quite a large fee talking on a subject to Jack the Ripper. Well, he came to us for nothing, because he want, wanted to face the people that had criticized him to answer some of those questions. So he was able to do that, um, and, you know, we, we made sure that everybody that was there that night, and it was a really good turnout, didn't pull any punches, you know, that we wanted them to ask the questions of him, uh, you know, that they criticised in his book. Um, and he, you know, he really was on top form that night. So it's an opportunity, rather than people to do it, you know, behind a, sh uh, a shroud, the internet, let's say, to do it face-to-face. -face. 
Yeah, because I've heard a, a few interesting talks actually on uh, tape um, that I've managed to get a hold of through friends of, of the Whitechapel Society. And, you know, I've, I remember hearing Paul Feldman speak and, and other controversial figures. And, uh, and uh, the tough questions seem to be there, but there still seemed to be that respect shown. There didn't seem to be a, a lot of, uh, you know, just explosion of nastiness. It seemed like people were able to discuss things and, and get their points across without it uh, turning into a mudslinging match. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I think it's a very different thing for, for uh, when, you're, when you're facing somebody um, to, to, uh, than it is when you're, you're hiding behind a, a keyboard. <laughs> kind of have to be nice in case they hit you. I actually, uh, <laughs> if, if, if I could Sorry. step in, I, again, I agree with you, Paul. Uh, I think Howard always asks me, uh, what do you think about, you know, the message boards? And I say they're good and bad, and a lot of people don't understand what that means. They're good for, for providing information, but they're bad. They're bad because they have that anonymity. And uh, I respect authors or, you know, researchers who go out and speak and you'll find that there is a, a more uh, calm tone when you're in a room with somebody, and you can still ask the tough questions, but you're, you're getting answers versus just being attacked, and it, you know it's more welcome. Uh, uh, that's the way I see it. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I like the podcast as well, because I think just hearing somebody's voice, just hearing the way they they express themselves, um, as, as, you know, you even pick up elements of sincerity and, and everything else uh, from the voice and I, and I think that's an excellent thing as well because it suddenly makes people human they're not just words on, on a message board and that, that's, that's very good One of the interesting things for me is you know, um, you know reading the history of the River Murders was the fact that uh, on the night of the murder of Stride there was a debating society happening in the East End and I love the idea of that still happening, you know, with the Whitechapel Society. It's an organization that meet to debate, you know, the very subject that uh, was happening um, on the night of the, the Stride murder. I, I quite like that. I like the fact that in this day and age of people watching television and not getting out so much, that there are still debating societies that people can go to. Frog, it's Mike and Hull. For the benefit of the listeners, how can people subscribe to the Whitechapel Society? The best way is through our, our website, uh, uh, www.whitechapelsociety.com. Uh, you can subscribe through, through that. Frog, I have a question. Stan in uh, New York, how you doing? How you doing, Stan? Good. Uh, this is actually a question on something you touched on with uh, calling it the Cloak and Dagger Club and finding that you had difficulty in getting uh, academics to come and speak. Uh, <laughs> What, what what do you think is the the negative impact of having stuff about the Ripper fall into that entertainment genre? Well, all I can say is that a lot of people that I approached, and we're not talking about one or two here, we're talking about quite a few, and I actually wondered if the reason that um, the old Cloak and Dagger Club was having difficulty getting speakers was the fact that... Was the fact that um, they thought were, it was a, a society or a club of weirdos that reenact the murders out. You know, they all met to actually do role play in cloaks and top hats and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and even when you were sort of like talking to these people, so well, we can, I can assure you that's not the case. Um, it, it was enough. The name was enough to put them up, off. You know, you, you get the image of Jack the Ripper of the top hat and, and the knife and the cloak and all the rest of it. And there's no actually getting out of some people's minds. Right, and this is around the same time that um, d um, parties, like dinner parties, I know this was a fad in the United States in the mid-90s where um, mis murder mystery dinner parties would take place where people would all pay a fee to go and have dinner and then a mis murder mystery would be enacted in front of them and they'd all have fun playing Clue and trying to solve the, the mystery, that type of thing. So, well, well, I think those, those can actually be great fun. Those can be great fun because you know exactly what you're going to. But, you know, we want people to know that we were a serious debating society and we're trying to advance the study of ripperology, uh, you know, and, and uh, social history of the East End. You know, mm -hmm. that's how we want to come across. We don't want to come across or even be thought of as some weird role-play society. 
if I can just have a follow up to that. Sure. I, I, th sure. I think that I think that's great, and I and I agree. The first Ripper conference I went to, people thought I was dressing up because they didn't understand that it was an academic. Uh, there were lectures and other stuff about the case that was all based in academics. But I guess the the question that I'm really concerned on is, do you feel that the field of Ripperology has not not so much in, been invaded, but has been immersed with people who look for that other than academic side of, sides of the issue because it has become such a mainstream issue, that entertainment side of it? I think there's some, I think there's some justification in that statement. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the elements of um, when we first did the show, you know, yours truly, Jack the Ripper, in the UK here, was we didn't quite know. I mean, I wanted to do it Actually, I didn't want to sort of like, uh, you know, put, uh, you know, William Gold and the Duke of Clarence and all that sort of thing and the sonic conspiracies. I wanted to take the facts of the Ripper case and put it in a musical format. And I was told by numerous people that it wouldn't work because you couldn't mix factual stuff, that factual stuff. The entertainment value would go out the window. It seemed to me that the majority of people and <laughs> the, first the first time we actually performed the show, a group of women came towards me and I thought, here we go. I know, I know what's going to happen here. I thought I was in for it. But they actually came up to complain that there wasn't enough buckets of blood thrown across the stage. <laughs> they wanted, they actually wanted blood and gore. Right. Um, you know, so... But no, I mean... I think probably one of the reasons that our show perhaps hasn't become as successful as I honestly thought it would become is because it is too factual. And, uh, you know, when you take the film from hell, you know, a golden opportunity to, you know, do something decent, make a decent film about Ripperology. Sure enough, you know, to actually sell the film, you've got to come back to the conspiracy theories and all that sort of side of it. It's what sells Jack the Ripper, it seems. In fairness to that, they, they had bought the uh, the comic book and that's what they were basing the movie on, so they couldn't really move away from that too much, I suppose. They, maybe they shouldn't have bought the comic book to start off with and, and just decided to do a Jack the Ripper movie. But a movie's not going to be made unless, the, unless it's going to sell, and the only way it is going to sell is usually through the conspiracy theory. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but that's one of the problems with doing anything on Jack the Ripper. Surely, is that it's open-ended. There, there is no conclusion. You have to come. You have so you have to invent one in order to give the audience a closure in the, at the end of the uh, end of the movie. It's yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in the East End itself, um, these days, it seem, there seems to be a turn... To, uh, I see an effort being made to make it more... I mean, we have the Docklands exhibit. Um, there was a, the um, there was a, a artist's exhibit that had paintings based on the uh, victims' photographs not too long ago. Um, so there, there does seem to be, you know... Uh, uh, some kind of effort being made to present to the public the factual uh, case of Jack the Ripper. Don't you guys agree? I agree, John, to the, to the effect of, if I can comment on it, to mm -hmm. the effect of that in studying the timeline of the case, I think what we're seeing right now is a, an era that is reactive. And in, you know, in context with the question that I asked Rog, which I thought was very answered very well uh, there's been that oh, there's been that policy away from the facts of the case and getting back to it which I agree is is a proper way to do things is what's going on now so you know the the things that you that you say you saw uh, the websites the talks I think they're acting as a reaction towards s taking steps away from the academics and focusing more on the entertainment portion of it or the social aspect of it, which everyone has the right to do, yet does tend to cloud the overall issue of it, in my opinion. I think a distinction has to be made between between the, the entertainment value, which is, is, there's a very clear distinction between the entertainment value of Frog's show, despite the fact that it's as accurate as he could make it to be, and on the other hand, the, uh, a more serious, uh, and I use that term sort of uh, 
broadly speaking, a serious approach to, to, to the Ripper. What worries me, I think, is, is we've, we've got this exhibition and we saw a book published not so long ago by the University of Manchester in which academics are sort of straying slowly into the, into the field of Ripperology. The exhibition, I think, is, is great, but as I've said before, I think the, the, the book that accompanies it, there isn't even a chapter in that book about Jack the Ripper. It's almost as if the name is being used and and the book itself, and that worries me just a little bit. You know, it's uh, I I I think that there's a fun element that that's there, which does put serious people off becoming involved in a subject. And there have been uh, a number of instances where I think you start to approach uh, a library or or a, a, a research institution of some sort with a view to getting some information. And the moment you mention it sort of about Jack the Ripper, you kind of see them switch off and think, well, you know, that's not a good or sensible use of our resources. And, and that's, the, that's the area that worries me, is where people look. In fact, look at the, 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 the catfighting that goes on on uh, some of the, the websites, and it doesn't give a very mature view of, or impression of, of uh, Ripper studies. I think uh, that's that, a great that, point. Oh, sorry, Ted. I think Sorry, that's that a great point. I, <laughs> I think that that's that's in any academic circle, though. I mean, I've seen two archaeologists go at it over a dinosaur theory, and they behave with as much, um, uh, you know. Uh, fervor and immaturity, if you want to call it, or whatever, as some of the people behave on on the message boards. I think it comes into play, and in, no matter how academic and dry the subject matter is, when you have competing theories, human nature is human nature, and the the subject is less important than human nature. And that kind of infighting is going to occur in any academic field. Yes, I, I, is, well, I agree with you there. The problem is just, you know, we're talking about a, a serial killer. And so that nature, it, it's really not about the academic infighting or even that when you try to approach it and take it seriously. The bottom line is, you know, you say serial killer and people immediately consider it to be gruesome blood and gore with no real intellectual or academic uh, content of worth. Oh, believe me, I've encountered this that with just with this podcast. Uh, people who I know... Um, who find out that I do this podcast have this, uh, you know, kind of disparaging opinion of it. I think I think I'm a freak. So, um. because the subject itself does not have respectability, and in many ways, the, the even the exhibition, although it's a very serious exhibition in t for, for Ripper studies as overall, because it's the first time there has ever been a serious exhibition put on uh, that uses Jack the Ripper. Uh, the book itself perhaps doesn't reflect the, the 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 idea that the subject of the Ripper himself is is uh, is a respectable subject for for study, and that's where I get mildly irritated about with, with the message boards and things is because because although I understand if you if you have two archaeologists going at each other, they are at least two academic archaeologists. Uh, the subject has a, a certain respectability about it, so although they may be behaving in a very childish and silly way, um, the, the subject and, and, and their, their academic status still retains some sort of uh, respectability, but we don't have that, so in order to give ourselves a, a degree of res respectability and perhaps uh, get get people to take us more seriously and, and, and to give uh, a lot more assistance in terms of research and so forth. Perhaps we should strive to, to, to not be the two archaeologists rowing about dinosaur bones we, we'd, and, and give the subject uh, an element of respectability which we haven't got yet. Well, Frog, when, when you um, changed the... when you resurrected the Cloak and Dagger Club, for lack of a better term, to into the Whitechapel Society 1888, did you find that just uh, the name change and kind of refashioning it as more of an East End studies instead of a strictly Jack the Ripper studies opened uh, it up to the, all of the academics that you had such as that you guys struggled um, getting involved in the club when it was the Cloak and Dagger Club? If I, if I can just explain a little of what happened, um, 
it, it was a it was a pretty difficult thing to do in the first place because for a start, a lot of people members didn't actually want to get rid of the name Clerk and Dagger Club. Uh, people hate change. Um, I actually had to stand up in front of a whole meeting and explain myself of how I thought um, we should change, the reasons why we should change. Um, the philosophy behind the whole thing really is that, um, yeah, I mean, I was the, the, the actual hook for me was, was Jack the Ripper, but the more I delved into the subject, the more I fell in love with the East End, um, the East End as it is now as well. Um, which is why that I, I decided to um, you know, organize a photographic competition because a lot of the buildings around the East End are being demolished. You know, uh, there are petitions going up. People don't want these buildings to be demolished. And I thought that the Whitechapel Society should come on board and try and do something about it. You know, here, here's an opportunity. And I was amazed when English Heritage came on board and um, offered to judge the competition. Um, that, that was, you know, fantastic news. It's something that, you know, for me, in the Whitechapel Society, I, I want to sort of like, you know, I, I want to sort of like diversify. Yeah, I mean, the Ripper murders obviously always going to be interesting. There's always going to be open debate about them, and you know, as I said earlier, you know, new new suspects and all the rest of it. But I'm I'm actually going away from the murders themselves. I'm going to more towards the the social history of the East End. I find that far more fascinating. Um, it's the impact the murders had on the East End, what was happening at the time, and how they influenced each other. Um, not so much who was Jack the Ripper, but why was Jack the Ripper is, you know, how I want the Whitechapel Society to go. Um, you know, right down to a lot of these buildings that are being demolished in the East End as we speak, you know, Victorian buildings that were around at the time of Jack the Ripper. Um, you know, there are petitions going, and I actively encourage the Whitechapel Society to get involved in that, you know, to join in with these things. Um, but, having said that, um, it's down to the people to... You know, you, you can organise photographic competitions, you can do this, that and the other, but unless the membership, you know, wants to get involved, then, you know, it's not going to happen. So um, you can only do your best to try and actively encourage people to do it. So does that mean that you would like to see a more uh, active role uh, politically and socially uh, for the Whitechapel Society in the East End? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's the only way of showing, showing people that you actually mean business. I mean, um, otherwise just become another... Uh, East London Historical Society. And I think that's sort of the point that I was thinking of earlier is that, you know, you had to change the name to get recognition. And if you approach a librarian and say, you know, I'm, I, I need some help about the Jack the Ripper case, the librarian doesn't read the message boards. The librarian doesn't um, know the key players in Jack the Ripper. So she's not basing her initial reaction on how we as a community behave or don't behave, we could all be exalted saints. I think the problem is always going to be it's the name. And Jack the Ripper has very little respectability because it is so given to Hollywood dramatization and Hollywood treatments that, you know, like you said, you had to change it from the cloak and dagger to the Whitechapel Society to give it that sort of respectability. And the problem is always going to be just mentioning Jack the Ripper you lose face. Well, that's true. Can... That's, that's true, Ali. Because um, you know, when I uh, talk to the general public and I and I use the term Whitechapel murders or Whitechapel murderer, they do not know what I'm talking about. I have to say Jack the Ripper um, for the common man in the street to understand, especially like when I'm giving talks and things like that. But anyway, Stan, you were going to say something. Yeah, and and this is probably a question that could be both for Ali and Frog. Uh, well, don't you? Don't you feel that some of that lack of respect for when you go in and say, I need a book on Jack the Ripper, uh, derives from branching out into, into other topics? Meaning, uh, like Frog said, he was interested in Jack the Ripper and then became interested in the social history, which is fine and respectable, but I think we all know that on message boards and a lot of, uh, and on a lot of people's blogs, Jack the Ripper is perhaps the, the tagline, and then there's so much else that kind of, I feel, takes away the credibility of attacking the case so much so that even to mention that you want to solve the case prompts some snickers. Do you, do you have any comments on that? Uh, Rob, you want to go first? <laughs> um, 
Jack the Ripper is always going to be the hook. Um, there's nothing on the front cover of the Whitechapel Society uh, in-house magazine that, uh, that mentions Jack the Ripper at all. Uh, that was done on purpose. It was to get away. The idea was to, I thought, for the actual magazine to be accepted, was to try and make it, and not just the actual magazine, but also the, the speakers, the society. My idea was to make it 50-50 Jack the Ripper and East End history. Um, you know, to be, to be really accepted in the world of ripology. Um, I was going to ask a question of, to Paul Begg about um, how did he feel about the you know the name of the of the ripologist? Did he feel that that put a lot of people off? Is that is that one of the reasons why it uh, you you know you you stopped it being a you know a hard copy? Because I remember you said that you you wanted it to be you know for sale in shops and that sort of thing. Do you think that yeah. the actual name ripologist is enough to put some people actually stock it in their shops <coughs> i don't know um the reason why it went electronic was 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 very simple and that was that um it, it we there was a declining number of subscribers uh, to start off with which was uh, uh one small problem but there, there was a, a moment it's kind of complicated so i'll get through it very quickly um is that there was one month where the bulk of the subscribers or resubscribers had to come in and we realized that if for some reason they didn't then we would not have enough money in the bank to to print that issue and be able to repay uh to the uh existing subscribers what what was outstanding on their subscription so uh, it was eduardo who came up with the idea of uh, of going electronic which i think it's kind of a good idea, although it's 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 a bit messy, I think, at the moment. As far as the name of the magazine is concerned, uh, the number of times that I ring up for a review copy of a book, uh, and if it's if it's a Jack the Ripper book, obviously there there's or has some connection with the Ripper, there there's a uh, little problem. But if you're trying to get uh, a book about the East End or something. Um, and you say Ripperologist, I, I try really to, to to uh, to play that down a bit and just say oh it's for ripperologists and then then give my, give my address the book <laughs> I wanted want to be sent to uh, because quite often they, the book never to they 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 give you all the usual oh yeah sure you know and all the rest of it and then the book uh, the book never turns up so yeah I mean the 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 name is a is a problem in in that respect but um, I don't know that there's anything that we could reasonably do about that. It, it seems to me that, that you know the people. I mean, I, I don't go on to the um, the casebook that much. I occasionally go on to it, um, but it seems like a lot of people are, are hardened Jack the Ripper enthusiasts. Not so much East End history. Mm. I could be wrong on that, but it seems to me that the majority uh, seem to be debating the subject just of Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Um, you know, I don't yeah. know if I'm right or wrong, but. I think that's no, one of the problems, just, just to go back to, to Stan, is, is that in order to be able to set the Jack the Ripper murders into any kind of context and come close to, to perhaps resolving uh, the, 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 the mystery, you have to be able to, to understand the, the context in which the murders took place, and that means that you have to understand East End history and, and what was going on at that time. Yeah, so I think the two together... And on the casebook, yeah, I mean... I think the East End context gets mixed in with the threads. So although there are some specific East End threads that have been created that were also lost when the crash occurred, but normally it's not so much East End history, one thread, Jack the Ripper, the other, but in every single Jack the Ripper suspect thread, um, location thread, witness thread, those elements of the history get pulled in. Well, a witness wouldn't have done this because at that time in the day, you know, that kind of thing, and it gets, it gets gelled into one cohesive concept rather than, here's the East End, here's Jack the Ripper as a separate entities. Right, yeah. I agree with that. I mean, we hear, we know all about the the clocks on every single wall in the whole neighborhood because of some of these um, these <laughs> suspect threads. So. Um, back to uh, Ripperologists as as it came out with the Cloak and Dagger Club. Um, <coughs> um what what <clears throat> some of those magazines were were pretty much um, just a. Uh, Xerox sheets, is that correct? Is that I mean, it started off as pretty much a, a stapled together, kind of like an underground zine, right? 
That's right, yes, just two sheets, I think it was, not it, Frog? was the very first it one. Was. Uh, the original, yeah. Which I think I've still got here somewhere. Um, yes, and then Paul Daniel took, uh, took that over uh, and um, basically t- turned it into a, a very good, chatty club magazine. And then uh, there's that, that if it, it basically got to a point where I think it's fair to say that the bulk of the membership were people in, in, in America and, and, uh, or outside of London who, for one reason or another, obviously didn't attend the meetings and uh, generally didn't know half the, the members that, that, that the magazine was talking about. And so it became evident that Ripperologist had become more or less a subscription magazine less than a club magazine. And so we tried to uh, divide it really into, into two parts so that you had a, a hardcore sort of uh, magazine and then a, a, some pages devoted to the club. But uh, that, the, the club bit, for one reason or another, just, just didn't gel and didn't work. And we couldn't, uh, I mean, they were having trouble getting speakers and everything that Frog's been talking about. And so we couldn't promote promoted at all and, and uh, then that fell by the wayside and then uh, gradually the, the, the C&D was beginning to have such serious troubles that uh, we, we kind of really had to separate from the Cloak and Dagger Club in order for the, for the RIP to survive otherwise if the Cloak and Dagger Club had gone down the RIP would have gone down with it and that, that as Frogger said I mean, it caused a, a little bit of animosity that's never been uh, <laughs> never been forgiven for but um, no, we, basically, it, it had to be done. We'd, we'd got a good magazine going, and, and Adam was, was producing some fantastic layouts and covers and so forth, and it was doing really well. Right, just real quickly, Stan Russo has to be leaving us uh, at the moment, so we, it's, say goodbye, Stan. Take care, guys. Uh, great talking with everyone as, uh, as usual, and uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. All Have right, a good day. Nice having you on, Stan. Maybe Thanks, we'll Sam. see you next week. You Cheers, bet. Dan. Bye. Um, just uh, changing subject slightly, um, I actually wanted to ask Frog about another thing that um, is probably even more well-known and more popular than Jack the Ripper that uh, he's also done a musical on, and that was uh, uh, the Titanic. Uh, you did a play called The Daughter of Destiny, I believe it was called? Yeah, uh, that's right. Can you tell right. us a bit about that? Yeah, basically, um, I live in a, a little town called Salisbury in Wiltshire. It's probably best known for being near Stonehenge quite close to Stonehenge um, but it's quite close to Southampton and I really wanted to see if there were any uh, uh, victims on board the Titanic from my hometown uh, so I started going through the archives and came across this this one person that really captured my imagination because a blockbuster film had just come out um, and the story from Salisbury kind of highlighted it, it was a young girl of 19 uh, on the Titanic on a, her honeymoon um, she actually worked in Salisbury for Lipton's branch of grocers, and her husband was um, Sir Thomas Lipton's blue-eyed boy. He, he was responsible. If there was a Lipton's in trouble, he'd put this manager in charge, get them back on their feet, and then move them to another store. Well, the Salisbury store was in trouble, and he came to Salisbury, fell in love with his uh, cashier, and they got married, and Sir Thomas Lipton then uh, offered him promotion to his store in um, New York. Uh, Manhattan, and um, on the way, uh, struck the iceberg, and they both perished. Uh, but I've researched the, the life stories of both people, and it threw up some other fascinating stuff, because uh, the young girl that drowned, her name was Eileen O'Leary, her brother, Gal Braith, he eventually emigrated to uh, Canada and got a job on the Toronto Star and became very good friends with Ernest Hemingway. Um, so the story is not just Titanic, um, and we're actually working on uh, a booklet to be released on the story because it's such a fascinating story of involving the whole family. Uh, I turned it into, I uh, decided it was originally just going to be uh, like a trail around Salisbury of uh, you know all the places that the Titanic victim went to in Salisbury, a school where she worked, that sort of thing. Um, then I decided to turn it into a, a multimedia type production so we used um, you know uh, it was a musical but it involved a choir um, uh, me on the keyboards and cinema 
um, actors, actresses, and it was a huge, great production in the end. And um, we performed it a couple of times in Salisbury, then we performed it uh, by candlelight in a church. Uh, there was some talk of trying to do the, the Titanic Society, a bit like the, the, the Jack the Ripper conferences, they've got a Titanic Society conference. There was some talk of performing it there actually in Southampton, but I'm still waiting to hear back from them. Uh, yeah, and uh, I actually I actually preferred doing that production. I did the Jack the Ripper one. It was more emotional, I, I felt. And they were third-class passengers on the Titanic? Yeah, they were, they were the better third-class, third uh, just above steerage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Thomas Lipton actually paid their passage. That's probably why they were third-class. <laughs> <laughs> So, and there was the other disc that you did, uh, Frog, with the... I can't remember what it was called now. Um, Angels of Sorrow. That's the one. That's the one, yeah. yeah. Angels of Sorrow, uh, the idea... Sorry. Um, just, just to set that for people, that's uh, where you wrote music, and uh, people like uh, Stuart and uh, Martin Fido, and I, uh, were you involved in that too as well, Paul, like writing about the five victims? Uh, yes, I think. I, I, and the five victims. Yeah. I think I did Mary uh, Kelly, didn't I? I can't remember. Right, and uh, Frog did a yeah. musical piece between the, between the narrations. But go ahead, Frog. That's right. It was uh, chose really five five authors and uh, each to write um, a piece on uh, a chosen victim, um, which I then uh, the the actual story was read by by an actress behind some uh, background music, and then I did a musical interpretation that followed each read piece. Uh, the idea behind it was um, it was a charity thing for uh, victim to support in the East End of today. So all the proceeds from the sale of the CD went to today's victims of, of the East End. It's just a way of, because we talk about Jack the Ripper the whole time, and sometimes we neglect the victims. And I just wanted to do something for the victims uh, in a way that, um, you know, helps today's victims of, of violence in the East End. Um, we presented them with the first check, and uh, it was all over the East End papers. They, they thought it was a great idea. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to the victim, the victim support offices uh, when I presented the check, and they they told me the the, uh, the sad news that a lot of today's victims still go to the haunts that Jack took his victims to. You know, sort of um, sorry, the prostitution that was happening in 1888. Uh, some of the locations are still there, and today's victims of violence uh, are being abused in those very locations so things haven't changed that much apart from they're not being slaughtered of course but they're still being beaten and abused pretty badly yeah and when i was in the east end i noticed the prostitutes on brick lane just like they would have been there in 1888 yeah there, there is a railway bridge um it's i think it's somewhere around the back streets of flower and dean street there's a lot of areas around there that are still quite run down although they've they put a you know a program together now where they're doing all the buildings up there are still one or two areas around the the railway bridges or there were anyway the last time I was up there and uh, the prostitutes are still using those for um, you know op- open sex you know under the railway bridges bridges there it's not quite as uh, as as bad as it was back in the uh, the late 1980s when they were uh, visibly you know parading around uh, outside uh, the ten bells and so forth. Although after one meeting of the Cloak and Dagger Club at the uh, at, at the Princess Alice, I was waiting on the corner and I got accosted five times, uh, two by prostitute, but female prostitutes, and three times by men in cars. <laughs> oh, I, could have, I could, have made a, could have made a fortune. You sexy thing, Paul. Sorry. You sexy thing. Well, no, no. If you if you saw the prostitutes who are hanging around outside the Ten Bells. You wouldn't. Uh, I. I don't think um, physical attraction enters into the into in, in, into the proceedings at all. In fact, I well, my operation the lorry drivers has gone up because they obviously have no taste what's, and, or, or discretion. At all. <laughs> you, you probably appeared like uh, uh, Hutchinson's Astrakhan man. Uh. <laughs> um, yes, well, it's, uh, times have changed. Uh, now, the Whitechapel Society meetings uh, have changed venues quite a number of times over the years. Um, is, is that due to uh, just needing larger size halls to hold the meetings, or 
Um, you, have, you get various reactions from different uh, the locations that just want to kick you out, or how, how is that oh. working? I would like to say yes to your first, so that the meetings have got more members coming to them. But the real reason is, is that um, as the East End becomes more vibrant, and um, you know, because it really does attract a youthful element now, the East End, um, the 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 rooms in pubs, upstairs in pubs, and back rooms in pubs, uh, been taken over by parties and um, discos. Uh, even the Ten Bells now has got like a resident DJ. Um, so. You know, more money can be made by hiring the room out than letting an organisation have it for nothing. So um, that's where it's gone. But we're now meeting in the Allgate Exchange um, pub, which is very, very close to the underground station, Allgate East Underground Station. It's a better room than the the City Darts. Uh, the layout's better and it's bigger. So um, you know, it hasn't got the history of the uh, Princess Alice City Darts, but uh, it, it's a good venue. You know, for acoustically, it's much better. Um, and if anybody wants to give a presentation you know, for the laptop, you know, it's better for that as well. Now, you've had, like, everyone really speak there over the years. Uh, uh, who are some of your favorites and, and why? Oh, Paul Beck. <laughs> oh, I'll pay you later. But he won't come back, you see. He won't come back and do it again. I've been trying for the banter him to come back. But, uh, yeah, um, I mean, virtually every... Uh, Jack the Ripper author. As a matter of fact, one of the only ones that hasn't spoken there is Bruce Paley, but I, I've actually been in contact with him recently. I've, I've managed to trace his email address and uh, I've been in contact with him to try and give a talk. Uh, that would be a great one to have, you know, next year if possible. But um, I liked Barrett when he came, you know, talking about the diary stuff. Oh, that was absolutely fantastic because it, it was a little bit controversial. You know, he, he was, uh, he'd obviously had a few before he arrived and um, had, more than had a few when he was there. Poor, poor old Keith Skinner was trying to conduct this interview and, uh, you know, trying to get the best out of him. And he was, <laughs> it was pretty difficult, pretty difficult job. He, he did a good job. And uh, it was just, it was just fascinating hearing what Barrett had to say about, you know, the diary and stuff. That was, that was, because the diary always does, doesn't it? You know, it gets people going and that. And to have him there, the guy, the guy that supposedly got the thing in the first place, was fantastic. What often forgotten, of course, is that you also had Anne Graham there when Paul Feldman did his talk. So uh, you had at that time you had Anne Graham, Feldy, uh, Shirley Harrison. Um, I didn't go to that one, I think. I uh, didn't you? That, that was, I think that was one of the first, actually. I, 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 in fact, it may well have been the first. May have yeah, been I think I missed, I missed all the meetings at the Alma. The first meetings at the Alma. I came on board. Um, at the uh, when Paul Daniels had taken over, and it was at the City Darts. Right, right. It's, um, but yeah, of course, in those days, of course, in those days, uh, because there wasn't uh, ripper notes or the the case book or anything like that. Um, you know, the meetings in London were every single major author talked there, and um, that's why I think the ripologists become so successful. Uh, you know, it, there was no trouble getting speakers because there hadn't been anything like it. It was the first, you know, Mark Galloway started it all off, so he had all the authors to choose from. Absolutely. I mean, you, if, if you look at the, the figures, the, the, the people like Nick Warren and Mark Galloway uh, and Stephen Ryder are, are, are the three, really, that that have made uh, Ripper Studies that, or significant changes and advantage, advances, to, to the to, to the field, and I mean they're they're kind of uh, or should be sort sort of iconic figures up there, really, because they had the guts to start off the, the the first Ripper magazine, the the first Ripper club, which led to all the conferences and so forth, and uh, in a in a roundabout way, and mm. uh, and uh, also the the, the first uh, Ripper site on on the internet. Yeah. And they've been paying for it ever since. <laughs> indeed, they, <laughs> indeed, they have. Yes, it's uh, yes. It's. Um, how often do you book your speakers at the Whitechapel Society? I mean, how far in advance? Um, well, I'm booking now for next year. So, um, and it's amazing the reaction you get. You know, um, you, you you actually have to say, look, I know this is you know, a long way in advance, but. It's the only way to do it. I mean, I like to be sure in my mind that 
you know, well, basically, if anything happened to me and uh, yeah, and I, for some reason, um, couldn't do it anymore, but I'm going to leave the thing in a healthy state. So um, I like to book them as far in advance as I possibly can. I mean, uh, we had Jeremy Beadle gave, um, I think, one of his, perhaps one of his last ever public performances was at our Christmas party, and that was booked a year and a few months in advance. I mean, obviously, he's, he's very busy anyway, but, um, yeah, well, I'm actually booking now for, for next year. Wow. Sad loss, Jeremy. Yeah, um, he gave a, I mean, it was probably the best Christmas party we'd ever had, and it, it was obvious that the guy wasn't very well. You, you could see it in his face. He was, you know, he wasn't very well at all, and um, he, he did a, oh, it's just an unbelievable night, you know, fantastic. He, be, he really will be sadly missed. He was a great, great person. Great person. Now, I don't think anything that Jeremy used to go to uh, um, in the field is ever going to be the same again. It won't. It'll it, it, uh, the conferences and everything. It's, it's just going to with him not being there. It's just miss the guy a lot. He's a difficult one to replace at the conference, and uh, you know the the conference organisers have all said that. You know how how are we going to replace him? Well, I don't, you, you can't, can you? I mean, Jeremy, Jeremy. Can you imagine who has to step into his shoes at the next one? I mean, that's going to be... <laughs> no one's going to volunteer for that job. No. no I suppose the only, the only thing that... Uh, the only good side about it is that uh, you won't have blokes having to take their trousers off at the... Uh, or drop their trousers at the, at, the, uh, at the quiz, which Jeremy always used to manage to get people to do. Yeah, he managed to get people to do all sorts of things that we'd never do in a million years. I mean, um, I was, yeah, <laughs> we had a conga go around the at the uh, Allgate Exchange. There was a conga go, and people that never get up and dance or don't like that, you know, uh, all these old guys were up there doing a conga. I just, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> My abiding memories is uh, of, of Perry Curtis, who's a seriously heavyweight academic. I mean, not in physically, but uh, I mean, as a heavyweight academic, standing on a on a chair in in front of everybody with his trousers around his ankles that uh, <laughs> it's a bizarre what Jeremy could get people to do yeah yes. well we've um, um to, oh go ahead Robert oh I have a final question that needs to be asked the, sure. you know before we get off uh, um why the name frog I have to know I knew you were going to ask that question, Robert. Um, <laughs> have you seen what he looks like, Robert? <laughs> I have, I have. I, I definitely have. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody had that. I usually answer that question by saying that I was born during a leap year. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I don't know. The, the honest answer is um, it was a nickname given to me by my father, who had a, probably a worse sense of humour than myself, and um, he started <laughs> calling me Frog for some reason. I... I to this day, I don't know why, um, and it caught on to such a degree that all my teachers called me up at school, and um, I've been called it ever since. That's frog with two G's, though. So. It's got to be two G's, yeah. yeah. Just make it a little bit different. <laughs> well, your name is, do they? Any more final questions for Frog Moody while we have him on today? I also thought that seeing Paul Beggar's got two G's, I'd have the same, so, you know. Right. Uh, he should probably uh, trademark that. Yeah. Not sure what to say. <laughs> <laughs> there should have been a response came immediately to my lips, but I, I actually <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> Just flattered. Well, Frog Moody, we thank you for being on the show today. And it's it's been uh, very interesting. And well, thanks, sir. Thanks for inviting us on. It's um, it's a great idea. Well, thank you. Um, you can subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal and become a member of the Whitechapel Society 1888 by visiting their website at www.whitechapelsociety.com. And our guest today for episode 14, the song and dance man, was Frog Moody. And joining us also was Paul Begg, Ali Ryder... Mike Covell, Stan Russo, and Robert McLaughlin. And we are a weekly podcast, and so we'll be back next Sunday. 
And again, I appreciate everybody for being on the show today. And it was a lot of fun. And we'll see you next week.